This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Hey, good morning, everyone. Our scripture today is from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 25. It can be found on page 847 in the Black Bibles in your pew. Mark 11, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, 
if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Hello, everybody. Hi, Andre. Um, My name is Seth Stewart, um, and I'm just really, really excited to be here. Um, I would not be the man I am today without Redeemer Johnson County, so it's just an incredible honor for me to come here and preach to you guys. Um, As Mark mentioned earlier, I was on staff here in 2019-2020, but I was also only on staff here for like nine months. Um, There was kind of this incredible opportunity at a nonprofit back in Oklahoma City where the funding came through overnight and after a lot of prayer and a lot of tears in Mark's office, it felt like God was saying, go back to Oklahoma City where we once called home and um, do the spoken gospel thing. And there's been so, so much that's been exciting and confirming about that journey. But part of what I want to share today um, is that in what I did in listening to God's leading um, hasn't meant that everything has been awesome. Um, So much so that I've been actually surprised at how hard it's been to move back and to leave here. Um, And in that moment, what I realized was that I had expectations about following Jesus that were unfounded. Um, Jesus has led me, I think, truly to go and do this thing in Oklahoma City. But it's often been into these little deaths over and over again so that he can resurrect me in the places that my heart is stuck. So as we prepare for Easter and as we go through this passage today, I want you to see that Jesus is a king and leader worth following. Um, And I want to show you why it's good news that following Jesus, even against the grain of your own expectations and desires, is a good thing. So let me pray for you real quick. God, I pray that your spirit is with me and in this room as we talk about King Jesus. Amen. Let me give you a recap of the book of Mark up to this point. Jesus' first words in the Gospel of Mark are this. The time is up. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And for 10 chapters, the author of this book, Mark, has given us story after story after story of what that good news looks like. The good news looks like lepers being cleansed and finally embraced after a long quarantine. The Good news looks like paralytics walking. The good news looks like gnarled hands unwithering. And like the good news is in these smaller mustard seed-like miracles of physical healing kind of grow out throughout the gospel into these proclamations of victory over these metaphysical realities of oppression. Jesus forgives sin. By his wisdom and by his teaching, he undoes the oppressive philosophies of Israel's religious elite. Legions of demons listen to orders from Jesus and release the prisoners. Jesus even talks to death and death gives up its dead. Like for 10 chapters, Mark has given a story after story after story of this powerful new king and the dawning of his kingdom. And for the last 10 chapters... Jesus has been walking towards Jerusalem. It's the capital city of Israel. 
It's where God's temple has been built. This is the place a king of the Jews, a new king of the Jews, should make himself known, make a spectacle, and establish his kingdom. And if you've ever watched the Brits do the thing with the royal weddings, not that I have ever done that, you know that big events like coronations and weddings are spectacles. And they aren't just impressive, they mean something. They, all the little details, the flowers and the horses and everything, they tell you something about what the royal family values and what the kingdom represents. That's why it was such a big deal when Harry married Meghan Markle. It represented that the kingdom of the Brits was no longer just the British aristocracy, but multinational and multiracial. The wedding and all of its details displayed the kind of kingdom yet to come. And the same thing is going on here with Jesus' coronation as he walks into Jerusalem. Every detail matters, and it tells us something about the kingdom Jesus is bringing. And the first thing we see is that before Jesus even enters Jerusalem, he steps on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is actually holy ground to the Jews. There are prophecies in Ezekiel and um, Zechariah that prophesy that's the first place God's feet were going to touch the ground. And when God's feet do touch the ground, that mountain was going to split in half. God was going to come and judge evil. He was going to rush into the temple and establish new ways to worship with his people. But I don't know if you noticed, when King Jesus' feet touch that mountain, none of that happens. It's our first invitation to lay aside our assumptions of what we think King Jesus will be like. He doesn't come immediately and wipe out evil or false teaching or prove his divinity in some earth-shattering show of power. Jesus comes quietly. And this Jesus needs a donkey. And what's funny is a friend of mine actually told me this is the only time in Scripture we're told God needs something. I don't have time to unpack that. So just go home, puzzle over that yourselves. Um, But... He tells two of his disciples to go into the upcoming village, and there they're going to find a donkey tied up waiting for them, and significantly, no one has ever ridden on it. Now, donkeys were royal creatures in Israel's history. And in fact, Israel's first king, Saul, was told he would be king while he was on a trip looking for donkeys for his father. So when Jesus sends his two disciples out looking for donkeys, he's intentionally repeating the story of the inauguration of Israel's first king. Besides that, donkeys had always been ridden by kings. This was the ancient limousine. It was an impressive beast. Um, In 1 Kings 1, when King Solomon is coronated, he rides into Jerusalem on a a donkey. Um, Kings did have horses back then, obviously, but they were war machines. If you rode, a king rode on a horse into a city, it was a declaration of war. Or, at the very least, the sign of a king who needed to prove himself to his people. Kind of like that picture of Vladimir Putin riding shirtless on top of a horse in the woods. Um, But Jesus is riding the steed of a king with nothing to prove. 
He's not interested in proving his leadership or declaring war, but secure in his power and his mission and his vision for his kingdom, he walks into his capital. And again, we have another invitation to consider Jesus differently than the Jesus of our expectations. Jesus' kingdom doesn't begin with a declaration of war against the perversion of Jewish, the Jewish religious system at the time or the, the destructive weight of Roman culture. Jesus comes as a peacetime king. And at this point in the other gospels, like Matthew and Luke and John, they'll start talking about Jesus' humility. Um, and they'll quote from another prophet in the book of Zechariah. But it's important to note that Jesus is not humble because he's riding on a donkey. The donkey is still the flex of a monarch. The donkey, Jesus is humble because of what he's coming to the temple to do. Remember, we're told a very significant detail that no one had ever ridden on this donkey. And in the Old Testament, only one kind of animal was never supposed to be ridden. Sacrifices. You can read about them in Deuteronomy 21 or Numbers 19. Jesus is making a very intentional choice by choosing a beast that would make us think about sacrifices. He's choosing this beast because it hints at the fact that he is a king right into the temple to sacrificially die on behalf of his citizens. And again, we're invited to reconsider our assumptions about Jesus. Jesus does not come to conquer, but to be conquered and to be killed just like thousands of other sacrifices would have been killed every single year. And then we're told that the disciples lay their cloaks on Jesus' donkey, and the crowd does the same thing and puts them on the ground and then starts laying palm branches on Jesus' walk towards the temple. Now, there is another king. There's actually only one other king in the entire Bible where the citizens lay out their clothes for their king, and it's King Jehu. During King Jehu's coronation, the men take off their robes and lay them out, and the king walks on them. But Jehu was a bloody king. He assassinated and slaughtered the wicked King Ahab and his dynasty. If you don't know Ahab, uh, he used the power of his kingdom to steal from his citizens, murder those that didn't agree, and then set up child sacrifice as the national religion of Israel. So, when the people of Israel now are laying their clothes out for Jesus, perhaps they're thinking that Jesus would be a new Jehu, a new monarch who would finally come and undo the villainy of Israel's religious system at the time. Adding to this sense of expectancy, the crowd starts chanting, Hosanna, which means save us now. And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. But when Jesus gets the temple, he doesn't do anything in Mark's gospel. He looks around, he surveys the temple in the twilight, and then he goes home to sleep. Only 12 people are with Jesus at the end of Mark 11. Kind of less than a triumphal entry, it's an anticlimactic entry. Mark has given the attentive reader all these hyperlinks to stories of kings from the Old Testament, but by doing that, 
And by doing that, he's given us the spiritual significance of what is happening. Jesus really is a king coming to tear down one authority and reestablish a new one through an act of self-sacrifice, but it's not like the people expect. And in fact, the people celebrating Jesus with the palm fronds and the clothes probably didn't even know the significance of what they were doing. It's good to know that Jesus rides into Jerusalem during a Jewish feast called Passover. Or not Passover, the, the which one was it? Feast of Tabernacles. There's one of them. Um, and part of the traditional celebration for that was to take palm fronds and wave them as you walked from Jerusalem, from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. And the lyrics from Psalm 118, the ones that were sung over Jesus, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, was actually sung every year over every pilgrim that walked down that road. Every year, there was a great parade from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. Palm branches were always involved. And so this triumphal entry, at least in Mark's telling, is not so much an intentional praising of the crowd, but an ironic one. Jesus is treated like the kings of old, but the people don't actually crown him king. The crowd reduces Jesus to a fellow pilgrim. And we see in that another invitation that Jesus is contrary to our expectations. Jesus is not just another pilgrim on the road to enlightenment. He's not simply a good man with good teachings. And if we think that, we're making the same mistakes the crowd is and not seeing the significance of all these kingly images that Jesus has intentionally chosen. Mark has told us the real story if we're willing to listen to it. Jesus really is a king, and he's coming to rip out an old establishment and establish a new kingdom, which is exactly what we see next. Now, there's going to be a, let me give you a small literature lesson. We're about to read a story where Jesus rips out what's in the temple. He's going to flip over tables. He's going to chase people away. He's going to stop business. But before that story and after that story, Mark tells us a story about a fig tree. And the reason he does that is so that you read the story of the fig tree and the story of the cleansing of the temple simultaneous with one another and allow the fig tree and the temple to interpret one another. Make sense? The tree, then, is a symbol of what Jesus is about to do in the temple. So remember, just like the night before, Jesus walks into the temple and surveys the temple— The next morning, he goes up and he surveys a fig tree. And what's interesting is that Jesus knows there will be no fruit on the fig tree. It's not the season for figs. But regardless of that fact, he curses this tree and wants the tree to die. And it's hard to get around the fact that now we've moved away from the quiet, humble, peacetime king and starting to get a different kind of king, a king who has destructive power and wants to see trees die. He's acting a little bit more like the earth splitter of Zechariah or the uh, King Jehu. He's like, he's starting to act like these old kings. And with all that in their ears, the disciples and Jesus go back to the temple. And when they get there, Jesus is angry. Just like Jesus knew there would be no figs, he also knows what's already in the temple. He was there the night before. He saw it all. Market stalls, animals, people trading currency. He saw them closing up shop. 
and he starts his morning by flipping up over the tables and preventing anyone from doing business. Now, let me give you a little bit of context for why that's so significant. For several years, if not decades, that walkway, that road between the Mount of Olives and Jerusalem was a shopping destination. When pilgrims would travel from all over the world to the temple on feast days like the Feast of Tabernacles, they often lived so far away they couldn't feasibly bring animals, goats, lambs, doves from far away to offer to God. So there was a fleet of shops where you could tra- to, uh, exchange your local currency and buy animals in Israel. Also, in, back in Exodus 30, we're told that all Jews are supposed to pay a special type of temple tax. And you would have to exchange your money, even if you were a resident of Israel, into this temple currency in order to pay that tax and buy the things around, around you. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with this, but the rabbis at the time hotly debated whether or not all this commerce should be happening on the holy ground of the Mount of Olives. But what's fascinating is that about three years before this event, the high priest Caiaphas decides to add more stalls, more currency exchange bureaus inside the temple grounds itself. It's an escalation of the type of sacrilege that might be happening already. And specifically, he adds these money changer stalls and the livestock to a place called the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles Gentiles are people that are not ethnically Jewish, and they'd always been allowed to worship in the temple. But over time, restrictions were added to their ability to worship and Caiaphas represents kind of the most blatant disregard for this this ethnic group. He puts a cattle market in the one place they could worship in the entire temple. So when Jesus comes and flips over the table and says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers, you get the anger behind this. Caiaphas and his religious establishment have not only effectively made it impossible for people that are not ethnically Jewish to worship God, on top of that, their reason for their lack of a meaningful worship experience is because of the profiteering of the priests. They're greedy. On top of that, we're told that Jesus specifically flips over the table of selling doves. Doves were the sacrifice for the poorest of poor. So when he does that and he calls the people running the table robbers, it's because the priests have allowed price gouging of the impoverished to line their own pockets. Now, Jesus, you know, the priests want to kill Jesus for not meeting their expectations of a rabbi and just following the status quo. But the people are so sympathetic for this new vision of what Jesus is offering in his own religious establishment, they can't do anything because they are afraid of the politics and the optics of the situation. And then, at the end of all that, we meet the fig tree again. Like Israel's religious establishment, it's rotten down to the root. And the point is that Jesus as king is tearing down the old system and its leadership just as he can wither a tree with his word. And then Jesus tells his disciples, have faith in this God. That's what's happening. Now, according to Jesus, having faith in God means 
praying. And notice what he tells his disciples to pray for. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. When Jesus says this mountain, he's not talking about mountains in general. He's not talking about mountains of sin or mountains of debt. He's talking about the mountain that they can see across, from the, val- across the valley. He's talking about the mountain the temple sits on. He's talking about the one he just ransacked. And he's telling his disciples that by the prayers that they pray in their mouth, they can bring down the corrupt religious system that they've grown up under. The religion that robs the poor and excludes the outsider and encourages priestly greed can be destroyed if they pray for it. And then Jesus says the same thing, but in a more general way. I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. So it's probably worth noting here that this is the way a king talks. King Herod in the gospel stories says to his daughter-in-law, or stepdaughter, sorry, what do you want, my dear? Up to half my kingdom. If you read the story of Esther, King Xerxes said the same thing to his wife. What do you want, my dear? Up to half my kingdom. And what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't offer half the kingdom. He offers the whole thing. And he's not trying to impress anybody like Herod or Xerxes was. He's saying, I'll give you anything you need to tear down the old system and to build something new. If the disciples want to end the religious regime of this temple and begin something new, they want to see the corruption they've witnessed over a lifetime end and be a part of the resurrection of a new religion centered around Jesus in his way of running his temple, they can. Now, there's so much more you could say about prayer and faith in that passage. But for the moment, let's just keep it laser-focused on the tearing down of one establishment and the start of another one. Jesus, at this point, Jesus and several... Uh, I don't know about you, but I have a lot of personal friends who are deconstructing right now, walking away from the faith. And I, what I think is interesting is I think they and Jesus would be on the same page at this moment. Let's burn down the oppressive religious system Let's replace it with simple faith in God and prayer. Let's kill the church because the church is the problem. Let's just do the Jesus thing. But what's really fascinating is Jesus' next words. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. And without a doubt, the disciples had bones to pick with Israel's, church, Israel's temple leaders. They had seen their injustice firsthand. They had experienced the extortion and spiritual manipulation. They were bad priests and bad leaders who had hurt those under their care. But in the same moment that Jesus wants his disciples to pray that they burn the temple down, he's also praying that they would forgive the people that built it. And don't miss this. Man, entirely contrary to what our culture tells us to do with corrupt priests. Jesus' Jesus's religious order begins by offering those same type of people forgiveness. Even when Jesus dies on Good Friday, 
he prays that God would forgive the people bleeding him dry. And what this feels like is irresponsible forgiveness. Forgiveness that's not just contrary to my expectations, but contrary to what we should expect from a God of justice. But to make this question even more difficult is that in Mark's gospel, the very first person, the very first human to say that Jesus is God, the very first person to call Jesus king unironically, the very first person to understand that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus is the centurion presiding over the destruction of Jesus' body. Contrary to what I expect in the beginning of a religious movement, Jesus invites and forgives and accepts a murderer into his religious order as its first convert, at least according to Mark's gospel. What's the point? Jesus is a radical leader contrary to our expectations. But what kind of leader is Jesus then? Is he the earth splitter of Zechariah? Or is he the quiet and humble king riding on a donkey? Is he the sacrificial sovereign? Or is he the violent Lord who comes to obliterate the wicked? Does Jesus want his disciples to burn the system down? Or does he want to forgive those that built it? And the answer is yes. And I think that's why Jesus is such a good leader and king. No one else can thread the needle between power and humility, warfare and self-sacrifice, destruction and reconciliation quite like Jesus can. And just to, for the sake of de-escalating it, my boss doesn't know when I need encouragement and when I need to be corrected. To those who report to me, I don't know when I need to wield my authority and when I need to take one for the team. And as a father, especially, I often don't know when anger is the right response to my children or compassion. Let me tell you a, a, a funny story that's also deeply tragic. Um, I, my daughter, her name is Sunny, has had a habit of put her to bed and for about five minutes will go by and then we'll hear wailing across the span of the entire house. Mommy, daddy, good night. And we'll say, good night, Sonny. And then about five minutes later, mommy, daddy, good night. Good night, Sonny, we love you. Mommy, daddy, I love you. Good night. We love you, Sonny, go to bed. Mommy, daddy, we love you. Good night, Sonny, please go to bed. Months. <laughs> Hours of interaction. <laughs> through hallways, yelling. And after a while, it was just so, so frustrating. Sonny, why are you trying to extend bedtime? You're, we know what you're doing. You're being disobedient. You, want, you just want to stay up, and you're mad that we put you to bed like at a normal time. Um, and then one day, we're having this interchange. I'm angry. Sonny, please just go to bed. Stop it. We're fine. Go to bed. Good night. She walks into our room, and she's in tears. And Erica, my wife, gets up and puts her back in bed. And then Erica comes back and I ask Erica, what's wrong? And Erica says, well, Sonny told me why she calls out to us in the middle of the night all the time. I was like, oh, why? She said, well, it's because she's, she thinks we're dead. <laughs> so she's calling out and saying, mommy, daddy, good night, to make sure we're still alive. <laughs> I legitimately cried. <laughs> like I, 
But the point is, Jesus would not have misread that situation. You know, like, he would have known to have compassion for my daughter uh, in her anxiety and not anger in what I thought was her disobeying my authority. You know, and I've seen men and women with one half or another of the qualities that we've talked about today, but very few with the wisdom, the security, or the courage to be both simultaneously. And I really want to follow that, that type of king because I know I can't be that king for myself or my family. And nor have I found that by looking at other pastors or bosses or politicians or what have you. And if it wasn't clear up to this point, when a king walks into his capital, tears down an old religious establishment, and promises to start a new one, the implication is that you bow. The implication is that you follow this king. And the first question you probably have is, well, what authority do you have, Jesus, to claim that much of my life? Which is exactly what the religious establishment asks Jesus in the next couple chapters. We don't have time to go into them, but if that's the question you have, what authority does Jesus have to say these things? Jesus answers that question for you in the next chapters. I'd encourage you to go read it. But for those of you intrigued and willing to follow Jesus, this king who's contrary to our expectations, I think we have to end with a warning. Because Jesus is going to invite you to follow him against the grain of your expectations. He'll ask you to follow him in compassion when anger feels more authentic. He'll ask you to follow him in zeal when you want to compromise. He'll ask you to wait when action seems necessary. He'll ask you to join the cause when you're ready to deconstruct. He'll ask you to forgive when you're ready to get even. In other words, Jesus is going to ask you to die, just like he knew he was going to die the Friday after he walked into Jerusalem. But when we follow Jesus into these smaller deaths on our way to our actual grave, we don't just have the comfort of knowing we have a good and wise leader who's not like us. We also have the hope that neither his death nor these smaller deaths are the end. On the other side of dying to ourselves is life and life more abundant and fulfilling and long-lasting than what we're experiencing right now. And right now I can tell you I'm experiencing the dynamic all over the place. All these tiny, small deaths as I'm disappointed in the leaders around me, I'm disappointed in myself, disappointed in whatever, to the extent that I'm following Jesus into disappointment is the extent I'm following Jesus into resurrection as well. And the reason that we have that confidence is what this week is all about. Jesus comes as a new king of a new kingdom who dies under the almighty power of a, an establishment, but rises three days later because he is a more powerful king, and his kingdom has the authority to demand the earth give up its dead. Jesus is a king worth following, and he will lead you where you do not expect, but he will always lead you into new life. So let's pray together as we take communion. Lord, 
Give us the courage and humility to follow you into the deaths we need to die. And give us the hope and expectancy to cry out unironically, God, save us. Hosanna. Amen.